So good morning, fellowship. So glad that you have joined us, whether you're here in, per- in person or for those of you who are watching online, we are so glad that you've joined us this morning to worship our God, to learn more about him and to learn more about ourselves. Now, for those of you who have joined us, if you're here for the first time, um, whether online or in person as a visitor, I want to direct you to fellowshiprogers.org forward slash I'm new, and we would love to get you some information. Or you can scan the QR reader, and the link will pop up through the camera app of your phone. Hit that link. It'll take you there. For those of you who are part of our body, fellowshiprogers.org forward slash news will give you all the information you need to you need. If you're here and you're a visitor today, you would like to just meet a real person, then join us out in the foyer. We would love to, to, to meet you and get to know all about you. Now, hey, we're in the fourth quarter, hopefully, of this pandemic, and I just wanted to thank you for uh, wearing your mask while you're here at the campus, being a good citizen and a good neighbor, trying to make this a safe place. Um, Next week is a very big day for us. Our student ministry reopened in December. Our children's ministry reopens next week, and we've got some more details for you. Check this out. Hello, my name is Matt Archer, and I work with our family ministry here at Fellowship, and we are so excited to open Fellowship Sunday morning services And we have a few guidelines that we want you to be aware of as we reopen. Our goal is to create a safe and clean environment for your child. That means we're gonna be practicing social distancing as much as possible. And for most age groups, they'll be wearing masks. Also, we're asking that one parent or guardian come for pickup and drop off in order for us to limit the number of people in an area. And we'll be disinfecting all hard services in between services. The second thing we're asking is for you to please make reservations for Sunday morning for the adult services. Those really help us as we're planning how many kids might possibly be there on a Sunday. In order for us to maximize space and serve as many families as possible, a lot of our room and theater locations have changed for each age group. And so please verify where your child's location is gonna be. And you can do that on the website, We'll have a map available for you there. We'll also have maps available in the foyer on Sunday mornings, and we'll have volunteers in each area to help you get where you need to be on a Sunday. On top of all of this, we're also launching a new check-in system. We're asking for you to please arrive just a little bit early and be patient with us as we we transition to this new system. Guys, we are so excited to partner with you in helping the next generation know and follow Jesus. I know that our children's ministry staff could not be more excited about next week. And here's what I predict. I predict that it's gonna be chaos. But you know what? I want that chaos back on our campus. I want our children to be experiencing their worship times in the Lord. Hey, think about this. There are some children that have never been to church. They were born in the pandemic or maybe they weren't old enough yet to assimilate into our children's ministry. And next week, we get to introduce them to one of the most beautiful things in the world, the Church of Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? And so we're so excited. Hey, I wanna ask two things of you, okay? Uh, One is please make a reservation for your service. That's how we're determining that we can handle the capacity of the children that accompany you. So that'll be really necessary. We're only asking you to make one reservation, your seats, for this service, and then we'll do some math on the children. And then secondly, we need workers. Um, Someone asked, how many do they need? Hey, let me remind you, I don't know who they is. It's we, and it's time to bring our kids back. And so if you would be willing to serve in our children's ministry, even for one month or two months, one Sunday a month, two Sundays a month. Amy and I are serving all the month of March. Uh, we haven't been in the children's ministry in years because they need us that much. And so would you be willing to go out to the center booth and give them your name? We would run a background check on you, and if you pass, we'll put you in there. That was a joke. No one laughed. <laughs> Certainly you would pass. I see some of you sweating. I, So make your reservation, and then we need you in the children's ministry next week. We can't wait. Hey, we got a great time of worship this morning. 
And so as we head into a time of singing and prayer and hearing from the scriptures, would you pray with me? Well, sovereign God, we recognize that you are the creator of the universe. And as your created beings, we wanna worship you and give you your due. And I pray as we sing and pray and learn, Lord, that you would show us who you truly are and that you would show us who we are and that we could grow this morning. So Lord, we give this time to you and ask you to meet us here. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Would you stand? Let's praise the Lord our God. Praise God from blessings flow. of God's faithfulness this morning.
praise you in the valleys all the same. No less God within the shadows. No less faithful when the night leads me astray. You're the heaven where my heart is. In the highlands and the heartache all the same. You are no less God within the shadows. No less faithful when my heart leads me astray. God, you are our help. You are faithful to your promises. And we thank you for your word this morning that reminds us of that truth. So God, may you give us ears to hear this morning, hearts that will listen to your truth. God, would you make us into your image? We give this time to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed that even when things are going really well, we are still tempted to look outside of the goodness of God to find happiness and contentment? Even when we're experiencing the fulfillment of God's promises, even when we have what we want or what we've hoped for or what we've dreamed of, our hearts are prone to wonder. It doesn't make sense. It, it defies logic. How can a satisfied heart still hunger? How can we be discontent on just the other side of fulfillment? Well, we're going to see that very thing in our passage today. We're continuing in our study of the book of Joshua, the Old Testament story of the nation of Israel entering and possessing the promised land. And up to this point, everything is going really well for Joshua and the Israelites. Maybe too well. And here's where we left off last week, the last verse, chapter 6. It said, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. The nation of Israel had entered the promised land. They had achieved their first military victory of the conquest and things seemed perfect. Now for those of you who are new to fellowship or maybe you just need a reminder, let me show you where we've been in our winter series on this Old Testament book. We are conquering Joshua in three phases. Phase one is entering the land, that's chapters one to five. Phase two is conquering the land, that's chapters six to 12. And then possessing the land, that's chapters 13 to 24. Here's where we've been. Chapter one, we saw Joshua commissioned to be the new leader of Israel. Chapter two, the story of Rahab's rescue. Chapter three, the crossing of the Jordan, miraculously. Chapters four and five, a time of remembrance and consecration with the memorial stones and the celebrating of the Passover. Last week, we had the first sermon of our second section, and we looked at the battle of Jericho, where the mighty walls fell down. Today, we'll look at two chapters, chapters seven and eight, the second battle of the conquest, and these will be the only two battles we look at. They'll be representative battles, and then we'll close the series with three sermons in that last section. Now, the book features three military conquests, a central campaign, a southern campaign, and a northern campaign, and today we'll see that second battle. So last week, we ended right here. The Lord was with Joshua. His fame was spreading across the land. They had crossed the Jordan. They were in the land. They were triumphant over mighty Jericho as the Lord brought his judgment on that Canaanite city. So let's pick up where we left off. Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. Even in the midst of their victory and their prosperity, while experiencing the promises and the presence of the Lord, sin entered the camp of Israel. And with it, the anger of the Lord. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. It says, but the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. 
uh-oh. What a drastic contrast from the last verse of chapter six, Joshua's fame spreading throughout the land, Israel walking in victory, to the first verse of chapter seven. The Israelites were unfaithful. Right at the peak of things going so well, sin entered the camp. One of the Israelites, Achan, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the spoils from the battle at Jericho, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. What an intense word picture, that even while the city of Jericho burned and smoldered from the previous battle, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now, don't forget, the Israelites were specifically instructed on how to handle the devoted things or the harem in the Hebrew. These were the spoils of the battle, and Joshua told them this. Keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you'll make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. The devoted things, the harem in the Hebrew, were the spoils of war. And they were under the ban, not to be personally or nationally accumulated in this first battle, they were to all go into the Lord's treasury. You could think of them as a first fruits offering in the land or a tithe from the land, if you will. And remember, the nation of Israel was also instructed from the Lord to Joshua, to them, about the importance of obedience in the conquest. Joshua 1.7 says, Be careful to obey the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may be successful wherever you go. So now we're going to find out what the ramifications are for disobedience. Look at verse 2. It's going to take us into the story behind Achan's sin, and it will also tell the story of the second battle of the conquest, the battle for the small city of Ai. And note, verse 2 tells the story from the beginning, and the characters in the story do not know about Achan's sin. Verse 2 says, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. Again, Joshua utilizes his spy strategy. This covert reconnaissance mission is um, implemented. And the recon report suggests that conquering the next city would require fewer resources as it was a small and unpopulated area. So it was suggested to Joshua that he dispatch just a small regiment of soldiers to take the little town of Ai. And considering the ease of victory they experienced in the previous battle at Jericho, it seemed likely that Ai would offer little resistance. But what was not taken into consideration was that the Lord was no longer ensuring their victory. His power and his presence had been removed. His anger was burning against the Israelites. But at this point, Joshua and the nation do not know this. Look at verse 4. So about 3,000 soldiers went up. But they were routed by the men of Ai who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites as, from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people of Israel melted in fear and became like water. In a shocking upset, the little city of Ai routed mighty Israel and sent them running in fear. This is the third time in the book of Joshua that we see that phrase, hearts melting in fear. The first two described the Canaanites fearing the pending judgment of God through the nation of Israel. Now it is describing the Israelite soldiers who were devastated by their loss, their hearts consumed by fear, and their rally cry of the conquest, be strong and courageous, has become just an empty slogan. Oh, what a difference the presence of the Lord makes. 
Well, with his soldiers streaming back into camp, battered and bruised and emptied of courage, Joshua fell apart and in desperation and despair went before the Lord. Look at verse six. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. Joshua was overcome with anguish and confusion. And accompanied by his leadership team, the elders of Israel, they assumed a posture of mourning and distress. And their outward appearance reflected their internal conflict. This was very typical Old Testament mourning. They tore their clothes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. And then Joshua cried out to the Lord in prayer. Look at verse seven. And Joshua said, alas, sovereign God, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If we had only been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan, pardon your servant, Lord, which means he's about to say something he shouldn't. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? So falling to his face in desperation and fixing the blame on the Lord, he questioned God and asked for clarity. What in the world's going on here, Lord? Why would you allow this? Why did you bring us this far only to have us fail? And what will I say to my people? And what if our enemies hear that you've abandoned us? And the Lord responded in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. The Lord said, get up, son. Why are you acting this way? Don't you know what's going on? Instead of looking into heaven and, and shaking your fist, you might try looking in the mirror. There's sin in the camp. Aren't we quick to blame God sometimes for the sin consequence that we brought into our own life by our poor choices? The Lord said the specific command I gave you has been broken. You've stolen, you've lied, you've hidden and some of the devoted things are still in your camp. That is why you have suffered loss. That is why my presence and my power have been removed. Take care of the problem or this will persist. So what was Joshua to do? Well, look at verse 13. The Lord instructed Joshua on how to remedy the situation. He said, go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. Joshua, you need to find and remove these devoted things. That word consecrate, it means to devote or dedicate something to God's purpose or service. So Joshua told the people to devote themselves to getting right before the Lord, to find and stop the sin in the camp, he goes on in verse 14. He says, in the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe and the tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward. Clan by clan and the clan the Lord chooses shall come forward. Family by family and the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. In order to identify the offender and to find the devoted things, there will be a ceremonial time of consecration, a process of elimination the determining process would narrow the nation to a tribe and then a tribe to a clan and then a clan to a family and then within the family they would find the man who was the offender and the results would be severe. Verse 15 says, whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. 
He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. One of the key things we're going to learn in the book of Joshua is that God takes sin and disobedience and unholiness very seriously. And I think we saw that last week when the long-awaited judgment of the sin of the Canaanites happened at Jericho. And here we see it again. Sin merits the wrath of God. Disobedience warrants God's righteous anger. And we're going to see the serious nature of Achan's sin, stealing right out of the Lord's treasury, meet the serious consequence of God's wrath. Now, some people are going to view this judgment of sin as harsh. And admittedly, it is severe and it is definitive. But I wonder sometimes if we don't read our Bibles through the eyes of the culture that has influenced us. If we don't have a cultural bias that we read the scriptures with, and we live in a culture that is soft and lenient on sin, a culture which um, is, excuses sin or justifies sin, a culture that defends and supports those who live continuously out of the bounds of God's laws. We've even become a culture that enables and even celebrates sin. In fact, one of the most offensive things you can do in our current culture is actually to name something or call something a sin. So, so I wonder if our sin-friendly culture might make a passage like this where sin comes under the judgment of God seem harsh or unkind. It may even cause some to question the scriptures, but, but be careful. Our calling as followers of the Lord is to come under the authority of the scriptures. And if God's stance towards sin seems harsh to us, then it's probably time for us to make an adjustment and to come in alignment, not him. Back to the story. The identification process begins in verse 16. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward and the Zerites were chosen. He had the clans of the Zerites come forward by families and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had the Zimri family come forward man by man and Achan son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. The sin of one man had consequences for the entire nation, so the entire nation was gathered to deal with that sin. And, and from tribe to clan to family to man, the identity of the offender was made known. Now, the passage is silent as to the method of how the Lord identified Achan. Some believe it would have been by the casting of lots, but we're unsure, but we do know it was made by God's sovereign choice. The circle narrowed further and further until the tribe of Judah, the, the clan of Zerah, the family of Zimri, and then Achan, son of Carmi, was chosen. Note how the book of Joshua is constantly pointing us back to the sovereign power of God. We saw the Lord sovereignly part the Jordan River as the Israelites crossed. We saw the Lord appear as an angelic warrior at the end of chapter 5, we saw the Lord bring down the walls of Jericho by his sovereign hand. And here in this chapter, the Lord sovereignly and providentially knows about the secret sin of Achan. And then he providentially revealed him to the nation. So by divine identification, Achan is exposed. And in verse 19, he's confronted by Joshua. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. What beautiful and powerful words from Joshua. My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. 
What an intriguing concept. Not only can we give glory to God when we resist sin and temptation, but even when we fail, we can glorify God by confession, when we stop hiding, when we speak truth, when our darkness is brought into the light, that glorifies God and brings about the repentance and healing process. And Achan's confession is heavy here. This is a scene rich with drama. It's a scene that'll give you goosebumps on your arms. Can you imagine the pressure and the anxiety in Achan's life, what he must have been experiencing as his tribe was called? And then his clan was called. And then his family was called. And then he was called. And before the Israelites, and before Joshua, and before God, in a statement dripping with both relief and regret, he cried out, It is true, I have sinned before the Lord. He must have been weary. He must have been ready to explode as that time drew nearer and nearer. And not only did he confess, he gave details. He specified his stolen items. What did he take? A robe from Babylonia, some silver and some gold. He identified his motive. Why did he take them? He had covetous desire in his heart. And where did he hide them? Well, he revealed the location of the evidence. He buried them in his tent. So Joshua called for the stolen items to be retrieved. And then he conveyed God's judgment on Achan. Look at verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent. They brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and his daughters, his cattle, his donkeys and his sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Accor or the valley of trouble. And Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped a pile, a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Accor ever since. In the story, the sin of Achan intersected the wrath of God. God's holy judgment fell on Achan's iniquity. If you've ever wondered what God really thinks, of our sin, this is it every time. There's a play on words here in the passage. That word accor in the Hebrew means trouble. So in the valley of trouble, the trouble of the Lord was brought upon the troubler of Israel, Achan. But note this, after the sin was dealt with, after God's wrath had been poured out and satisfied, he turned from his anger. This is very significant theologically. The trajectory of sin is wrath and death. But when sin's debt has been paid, God's anger can turn away. What we see in the Valley of Accor is exactly what happened on the cross of Jesus. At the cross, our sin, your sin, my sin met the wrath of God. But check this out. God's holy judgment fell, but it did not fall upon us. It fell on our substitute, Jesus. Our transgression brought God's judgment, but he took it in our place. And God's wrath is a terrible thing. That's why on the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou what? Forsaken me. If you take away one thing from the story today, know this, that sin is subject to God's wrath. When we make sinful choices, we set ourselves on a collision course with the wrath and the judgment of God. When we are unfaithful and disobedient, we inflame the righteous anger and displeasure of our holy God and God's wrath does not play favorites 
Last week, we saw God's judgment and wrath fall on the city of Jericho and on the Canaanites. That's chapter six. This week, we saw God's wrath and judgment fall upon the Israelites. That's chapter seven. And soon we'll see it fall again in chapter eight on the city of Ai. Bible commentator David Jackman wrote a great commentary on the book of Joshua. He said this about God's judgment. God is not open to a charge of double standards with regard to his treatment of Israelite, of the Israel people and the Canaanites. God is equally displeased with all who sin. Do you remember last week when Joshua encountered that angelic warrior of the Lord? And he asked him, who are you for, us or them? Do you remember what that angelic warrior said? Neither. The Lord's for the Lord. And he's always against sin, and that's evidenced clearly in chapter 7. A few practical things that we can take from chapter 7 first. Sin has consequences. It has consequences for us personally. Galatians chapter 6 says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man or a woman will reap what they sow. It has consequences for our relationship with God. Our relationship with the holy God is greatly impaired by a sinful and unrepentant heart. And it has consequences for those in our life. Just like with Achan, his sin affected the whole nation. Our sin is not contained within our own life. It affects our spouse if you're married or our family or your parents or your children. It affects your coworkers and your neighbors. It affects your church. We saw all three consequences in Achan's life. And we also saw a pattern of temptation or sin. Achan saw the items. He desired the items. And then he took them. Joshua chapter 7 verse 21 tells that, that temptation process moving from the heart to the hand. It's also a pattern that we see elsewhere in the Bible. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Eve saw that the fruit was pleasing. Then she coveted it in her heart and then she took it. We saw the same pattern in King David's life when he was up on his roof. He saw Bathsheba and then she was beautiful. He desired and coveted to have her even though she was another man's wife. And then as the king, he sent for her and he took that which was not his own. Sin has consequences. Sin has a pattern for us, sin has a remedy in Jesus. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, we saw it clearly illustrated today. The wage of sin is death. There's a pile of rocks in the valley of Accor that would clearly testify to this. But God in his mercy and grace sent for the wrath that we deserve to be placed on the substitute, Jesus, his son. Jesus took the penalty for our sin. In Jesus, we have the gift of a mediator, uh, one who stands between our sin and God's wrath. He doesn't excuse sin. He doesn't look the other way. He doesn't compromise or change God's standards. He pays our debt. He took on our punishment. The wrath of God that was intended for us was placed upon him, Isaiah 53, tells the story. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. Oh, how marvelous and wonderful it is to have a mediator between the wrath of God and sinful people like us. Amen? One to bear our, the weight of our guilt and shame. And I want to pause this morning, whether you're in the room or you're watching online at home, and give us a moment to practice the discipline of confession. And so if you would, right where you're at, prepare your heart. And I'm going to ask you a very personal question. Is there sin in your camp? A sin that's a motive or a craving or a thought. 
sin that has been expressed in words or in deeds. Let's go before our holy God and spend some time in personal confession. Would you bow with me? And have some personal time before a holy God and come clean before him.
take a moment to make this your prayer. God, create in me a clean heart. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. my song to rise to you when temptation comes my way when I cannot stand I'll fall on you Jesus you're my hope and stay when I cannot stand I'll fall on you Jesus, you're my hope and stay. couple of passages in two of the, the prophets, the prophet Hosea and the prophet Isaiah, that speak of a return to God's favor after experiencing his judgment for disobedience. And look at the illustration that is used. The Hosea passage says, there I will give her back her vineyard, speaking of the nation of Israel. And make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth. And in the book of Isaiah, Sharon will become a pasture for flocks. And the valley of Accor, the valley of trouble, will become a resting place for herds and for my people who seek me. The valley of Accor, the valley of trouble, the place of God's judgment and wrath can become a door of hope, a place of rest. There is hope for sinful man, amen? God is not only a God of wrath towards sin, but of mercy towards sinners. He is a God of second chances. He is a God who remains faithful even when we are faithless. Sometimes we just need to turn the page. So let's do that. Turn the page to Joshua chapter 8, and we'll see the rest of the story. And here's what we're going to see in Joshua chapter 8, is that on the other side of sin, there is a second chance for obedience. While our sin is subject to God's wrath, there is hope for a new beginning, a clean slate, a second chance to walk in accordance with his will. And that's what happened for Israel after the Lord dealt with his with their sin, he turned from his anger and offered them a second chance. Let's look at the story, chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack I, for I have delivered into your hands the king of I, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except... You may carry off the plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. 
So on the other side of Israel's sin and failure, God's covenant faithfulness had never been moved. Joshua and the nation of Israel received a second chance to accomplish the Lord's plan. And in light of the stress and the anguish that had accompanied Israel's failure, the Lord encouraged Joshua. He said, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, which I'm sure he was experiencing both emotions. And in this second attempt at taking the city of Ai, there would be different battle tactics. This time, there would be an ambush and also different rules of engagement. This time, the Israelites may keep the plunder or the spoils of the battle if only Achan had been patient. So Joshua swallowed his fear, moved past his discouragement, and he obeyed the Lord. Look at verse three. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You were to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you be on alert. And I and all those with me will advance on the city when the men come out against us, as they did before, we will flee from them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city, for they will say they are running away from us as they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord, your God, will give it into your hand. So this time, Joshua brought the whole army instead of just a small regiment at the Lord's command. He selected 30,000 soldiers to set an ambush behind the city while he stayed with the majority of the troops and marched against the city head on. The plan was to lure the soldiers out of Ai to defend Joshua's frontal attack and then an ambush would take the city while its guard was down. And Joshua empowered his soldiers not only with the strategy but also with a promise. The Lord, your God, will give it into your hand. The power and the presence of God was back with Israel. And that's exactly what happened. An ambush was set behind the city. Joshua and the remaining soldiers lured the opposition from their protective positions, and an ambush successfully conquered the unguarded city. Verse 28 summarizes the battle. So Joshua burned I and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. The Lord brought judgment on the city of Ai. Chapter 8 ends with a pile of rocks just like chapter seven. God fulfilled his promise to give the nation of Israel victory. And Joshua and the Israelites once again partnered with God in active obedience. Chapter eight is a truth that we should not forget. That on the other side of our sin, there's a second chance for faithfulness, for obedience for living out God's will. The valley of a core can become a door of hope. Our repentance and turning away from sin can lay a foundation for future restoration and obedience. And not only does the book of Joshua teach us about the serious nature of God's judgment of sin, but it also reminds us that God doesn't give up on us when we fail. He remains faithful to us even in the midst of our wondering. He's a God of second chances. So whatever is in your past, today is a new day. In Jesus, our sins are nailed to the cross and along with them our guilt and shame. And for those who are willing to turn from their sin, the Lord is willing to turn the page. Isn't that good news? The God of wrath is also a God of mercy. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, may it be so. May we be a people who walk in your mercy and grace. May we be a people who repeatedly return to faithful obedience, even when we fail. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who stood in our place, who paid our debt and gave us a second chance at obedience. Lord, may we be faithful to you because you've been so faithful to us. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus, our substitutionary atoning sacrifice. Lord, may we be a generation that is faithful to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
Lord, we confess that we need help. And Psalm 146 says this for us, blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. So Lord, we come this morning and we bow our hearts. We bend our knees. Spirit, would you make us humble? We sing. our souls to another, for there is none like you, the one true God, full of grace and truth, justice and mercy. God, this morning, would your kindness lead us to repentance, and may we live a life worthy of your name. As we walk by the Spirit, as we turn our eyes to you, our help, O God of Jacob, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit and how you revealed yourself to us. Now may our lives be offerings of worship to you as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name.
amen. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning, fellowship. If you'd like prayer, our prayer room is open. Would you go in peace and the love of Christ? We'll be praying for you this week.